0: I had any musical ability, this episode would open with me singing Spooky Scary Skeletons, but I don't, so instead you get me telling you about it. (laughs) Why? Because it's almost Halloween! Now, I know we don't really celebrate Halloween in Australia, and that's especially true mid-pandemic, because uh, usually the closest anyone gets to actually celebrating is getting blitzed at some bar while wearing black lipstick. So no one's even doing that this year, which is a tragic loss for the ah shit what do you mean it's a costume party community. But I like Halloween, because I like scary stuff, the supernatural, and everyday food objects revamped to be shaped like ghosts. And this year seems like my ideal year to actually celebrate Halloween, because I can spend the night doing what I actually want to be doing, which is quietly scaring the shit out of myself by watching horror movies in the dark and eating pizza, and every so often texting a friend to say, did I ever tell you about the fact that I think my apartment is haunted? Because I do. So, this is obviously a Halloween themed episode. There are lots of horror movies and franchises that I really love. Uh, I thought about talking about the movie Halloween and its nine million sequels because I love to be as literal as humanly possible. Uh, And because I think the last film did some really cool things in treating the movie universe as though it were real life and looking at intergenerational trauma. But then I thought that sounded a bit heavy, and sometimes I just want to be stupid and sexy and a little bit unhinged, you know? And you know what screams stupid, sexy and a little bit unhinged while also being on brand for Halloween? Vampires! Sexy, bloodthirsty bloodsuckers with pointy fangs and murderous intent. Is this the episode where I inadvertently reveal myself to be a monster fucker? Who could possibly say? (laughs) Let's go! I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the spooky edition, and today I'm thinking about Interview with the Vampire. Okay, look, I know that 1994 classic, Interview with the Vampire, does not technically sit under the horror movie category. (laughs) Aside from a few choice moments of drama, it's very much about vampires sitting around contemplating the fact that they are vampires. But to be fair, people rarely do actual horror with vampires in a big blockbuster way anymore. Most contemporary vampire stories are about staring around lustily, thinking about neck biting, occasionally feeling bad about the neck biting, maybe giving some tortured monologue on the nature of evil, and being really hot, but also dangerous. The further you move away from a lot of the source myths for vampirism, it all gets much less scary and much more horny. But I re-watched Interview with the Vampire recently, and I was struck by two things. The first was that I had spent many years calling it Interview with Art Vampire, which is some real Mandela Effect parallel universe type shit. Given the amount of conspiracy theory QAnon stuff floating around, I do feel compelled to say that I realize human memory is fallible and that I've just spent a decade saying the title of the movie incorrectly, but I do feel like I'm not the only one. Anyway, the second thing was that it's a completely insane film. It has an insane plot, a series of increasingly insane casting choices, and when you read into it, a pretty insane origin story. Which makes it the perfect level of sexy and unhinged to form the basis of a vampire episode, to be honest. So, I thought we could spend the episode looking at vampire myths, vampire movies, and what they all mean. What did the interview with a vampire unleash onto the world? And how did we get from Nosferatu to Brad Pitt? Great questions. So, vampire mythology actually has a stupidly long history. The idea of creatures that feast on the blood of the living appears in basically every culture, usually more than once. Ancient Mesopotamia has about seven different demons that mostly like the blood of babies. (laughs) Ancient Greece, also big on the baby blood sucking, but also has Empusa, who liked to seduce men and drain their blood while they slept, which is a little bit closer to how we prefer to think about vampires now. Other cultures have stories that closely resemble other parts of the vampire myth. Uh, Ancient India, for example, has Vitalas, who are evil spirits that inhabit the body of corpses to reanimate them and hang upside down from trees, kind of like bats. But for a lot of cultures, it's a lot of baby blood sucking, though, just across the board. (laughs) Our contemporary idea of what a vampire is, that is to say, the rules of vampirism you understand when I say vampire to you, are almost entirely yanked from 18th century Southeast European folklore. The folklore itself had existed forever, but the Age of Enlightenment meant that even though there was mass vampire hysteria, very enlightened, uh, there was also an increased interest in scholarship and scientific inquiry as well as an improved ability to record and disseminate information. All that is to say, part of the reason we all know that vampires return from the dead, bite necks and can be killed with a stake to the heart, is because people started very formally studying this stuff, and perhaps more importantly, publishing it. Given how old a lot of this mythology is, it makes sense that we'd kind of be universally scared of things that want our tasty, tasty blood juices. Humans had no idea how anything worked, but we knew that when blood drained out of a person, the odds of that person continuing on were not good. <laughs> a lot of early vampiric folklore actually keeps them visually closer to corpses than our current imagery, but to prevent me from going down a whole like, rabbit hole about mythology, class, and death, uh, a fun tangent, but not what you're here for, uh, I'll give you my favourite quote on the prevalence of vampire myths. It's from Paul Barber's excellent book, Vampires, Burial and Death, Folklore and Reality, and it says, lacking a proper grounding in physiology, pathology and immunology, how are people to account for disease and death? The common course is to blame death on the dead, who are apt to be observed closely for clues as to how they accomplish their mischief. Our sources in Europe, as elsewhere, show remarkable unanimity on this point. The dead may bring us death. To prevent this, we must lay them to rest properly, propitiate them, and when all else fails, kill them a second time. So if this is about understanding and processing death, why have we gone from bloated, reanimated corpse to tall, handsome, vaguely gothic gentlemen in fancy Victorian attire? Look, a lot of reasons. Uh, so numerous, they're basically an entirely separate podcast episode unto themselves. Leaving aside our changing relationship to death and dying bodies and focusing purely on the aesthetic transformation, as soon as we started publishing fiction using vampire motifs, we started to make them kind of horny. Like, one of the first poems ever published using a vampire motif is about a guy sneaking into a woman's bedroom to give her a sexy vampire kiss to prove that it's better than Christianity something, something, sex and taboo, something, something, compulsive and contagious immorality explained by the analogy of demonic possession, bada bing, bada boom, suave, seductive vampires. The devil will try and seduce you with his charming wiles or whatever. And then speaking purely from an aesthetic sense, a lot of what we think about when we think about vampires is derived from fiction popularized throughout the Victorian era particularly Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was published in 1897. If you've never read Dracula, uh, it's a lot more action-packed than you would probably assume and a lot hornier too. Lots of obsessive longing and barely concealed lust mingled with death. I recommend it if you've got some spare time. Uh, Anyway, because the Victorians were actually unrepentantly randy in the most macabre way possible, We've kept a lot of what they came up with vampire-wise because it suits a lot of what we want to project onto vampires now, which is mostly a little bit of deviant sexuality, some grief and devotion, and a smidgen of existential crisis. Which brings me to two separate points in history, 1976 and 1994. Anne Rice published her first novel, Interview with the Vampire, in 1976, Despite a mixed critical reception, it was a hit and it spawned 11 sequels collectively known as The Vampire Chronicles. The film rights sold pretty quickly after that, though it kicked around studios for a while before it was finally adapted in 1994, which is our second key date. Anne Rice is also the sole writing credit on the adapted script. Now, I'm going to fess up and say that I've, I've never read the book. <laughs> Not for any firm reasons, more that it just hasn't crossed my path ever, and I've never sorted out. But I have watched the movie a lot. And when I re-watched it before writing this podcast, I thought I remembered it pretty well. But there were several points in the film that I had apparently completely wiped from my memory because I yelled, what? So many times that people came in to check on me. <laughs> now, I'm going to relay the plot of the film to you. But while I do that, I want you to keep in mind that Anne Rice wants to be taken extremely seriously as a writer. Like, extremely seriously. In a 1990 interview with the New York Times magazine she said what matters to me is that people know that my books are serious and that they are meant to make a difference and that they are meant to be literature. They are meant to be in those backpacks on the Berkeley campus along with Castaneda and Tolstoy and anybody else. Now I realize that I am talking about the film and not the novel so I am probably missing a little bit of nuance there. But please keep it in mind when I describe to you the plot of the 1994 film Interview with the Vampire. Okay. Louis Pointe Duloc, no, wait. <laughs> Louis de Pointe Duloc is a 200 year old vampire played by Brad Pitt. He's a sad guy, and he decides to tell his sad guy story to a reporter played by Christian Slater as some sort of warning about the perils of being depressed for 200 years. After his wife and daughter die, Louis wants to die too. Enter Lestat de Lioncourt, played by Tom Cruise. Now, I'm just going to pause for a dramatic effect here and repeat that. Played by Top Gun's Tom Cruise. Uh, Lou. <laughs> played by Top Gun's Tom Cruise, who sees Louis begging to die and decides to make him a vampire so he'll have company. Louis is immediately mad about being a vampire because it conflicts with his morals. He tries to eat rats at first, but eventually comes around to gnawing on human necks after Lestat decides to give him a vampire daughter to save their relationship. Claudia, played by Kirsten Dunst, is raised by her gay vampire dads for 30-odd years, but eventually is furious when she realises that she will remain a child forever. She blames Lestat, and so decides to kill him. Louis and Claudia dump Lestat into a swamp, and when he resurrects himself, they burn down New Orleans and flee to Europe. While there, they find a vampire theatre company play. <laughs> While there, they find a vampire theatre company led by Armand, played by Antonio Banderas. Armand is immediately horny for Louis and arranges to have Claudia killed. Louis is so sad about Claudia dying that he burns down the vampire theater company and dumps Armand to go and be sad by himself. Jumping back into 1994, the film ends with Lestat apparently still alive. Well, like, not alive, uh, undead and available. Uh, Anyway. He comes back, he rips the reporter's throat out and drives off into the night within the reporter's red convertible, muttering about how his ex-boyfriend does nothing but complain while Guns N' Roses plays in the background. So that, that, there's the plot. (laughs) Now, look, I know the lead-in to this was, was kind of mean, but I don't actually want to come off as excessively critical of Anne Rice, uh, because there's not really any crime in ambition and while she's no Tolstoy, based on the bits and pieces I've read, she doesn't actually seem like a bad writer. But it's really hard to navigate because her involvement with her creation is bordering on obsessive. It's not unusual for authors to be involved in, or even critical of, adaptations of their work, but Rice really kicked it up a notch when she essentially launched a hate campaign against Tom Cruise over his casting as Lestat, to the point where he was ecstatic to be locked filming on a soundstage in London in the middle of winter because no one would bother him about how he didn't have sexy vampire attributes. And when she finally saw the film and thus the error of her ways, what with Tom Cruise's performance being a true chaotic highlight in an extremely chaotic film, she took out full-page ads in Hollywood trade magazines apologising. If we're thinking about what vampires mean, we should Probably think about what they mean to Anne Rice, partially because she essentially kickstarted a wave of vampiric romances throughout the 80s, 90s, and noughties, and partially because you don't spend 12 months explaining incorrect vampire casting to anyone who'll listen if you're not extremely invested in the content. So, when Rice originally started writing Interview with a Vampire in 1968, she was actually working through the grief of losing her daughter to cancer. Rice has said since, I didn't know it at the time, but it was all about my daughter, the loss of her, and the need to go on living when faith is shattered. This all lines up. The immortal child, lost not once but twice, Louis's ongoing struggle with his lack of faith in either humanity or vampires, and Lestat's cyclical hedonism and loneliness, they almost seem like a road map for grieving. While the film is fairly camp and often pretty lusty in its adaptation, All these themes are still pretty clear throughout, and with that intense personal grief in mind, you can kind of see why Rice wanted to maintain such a tight grip on the characters. But why a vampire motif? How does that become a vehicle for grief? Well, to start with, for anyone who's ever experienced it, the depths of grief are terrifying. It's scraping parts of your soul that you would rather not touch, and it's scarier than almost anything. If you're making art, it makes sense to process something so horrifying through a traditional horror motif, and vampires work well in this sense because they retain a human form. When you look at a lot of traditional monsters, what you're seeing is a transformation away from humanity, as with like werewolves, for example, or a total absence of humanity to begin with, like demons. Vampires at some point were human and retain a human body even if it's immortal and consumed by bloodlust. In that sense, they make a perfect literary vehicle for such explorations. I've mentioned before when discussing horror that monsters usually mean something depending on when the film is made. Aside from zombies, vampires are maybe one of the better examples of this. Keeping in mind that this podcast tries to summarise a lot of information in 20 minutes, I would leave some room for interpretation in some of the following, but broadly speaking, the vampires of original folklore are about our inability to understand death or our relationship to it. Spates of vampire sightings and slayings pop up most frequently when there are a large number of inexplicable deaths in one place. When we move through to the Victorian era and start to see less actual belief in vampires and more use of them as a literary device, Vampires usually symbolize some sort of perceived moral corruption, often to do with sex and sexuality, that is somehow contagious in nature. Vampires make a particularly good vehicle for this in this particular cultural moment because many of the items that ward them off are Christian symbols crucifixes, consecrated ground, holy water. When we start moving through the 20th and 21st centuries, we can see just how flexible vampire mythology is. Vampires with feelings and guilt about their actions begin to take root, giving us more emotionally complex characters that carry the weight of an extended life. Sexuality, and particularly queer sexuality, is still a big theme, but in a more emotionally layered, often less moralising way. And that's just stories that keep with original vampiric themes, but really you can slap them onto anything. Like, for example, I just watched Vampires vs. the Bronx on Netflix – where the vampires are a metaphor for white gentrification. And it not only worked, it was actually pretty good. So when Anne Rice is thinking about vampires in 1976 and 1994, she's approaching them as kind of a metaphor for the human condition, because they retain their biological body but lose its failings, and in doing so are forced to reckon with the prospect of continuing to exist as everything around them rots and changes. A repeated refrain throughout the film is that very few vampires have the stamina for immortality and many of the characters see Louis' ongoing connection to his humanity as the thing that will keep him present throughout time. And that's what vampires mean to Anne Rice. But I think the actual beauty of the film Interview with the Vampire lies in the fact that vampires are so flexible. One of the things that was so hard in pulling this episode together was the fact that I kept finding weird reflections of other human things. At various points in my rewatching I was convinced that the whole film was about the queer search for family or an exploration of loss or a struggle with modernity. Ultimately I could take what I liked from it whether it was something silly like the fact that Brad Pitt stares really sadly into the middle distance for approximately like 97% of the film. Uh, Or something deeper, like the fact that where previously we were attempting to understand the nature of death through vampirism, now we are attempting to understand the equally insurmountable barrier of grief. Happy Halloween. Have an existential crisis mid-vampire film. It's on the house. Uh, So that was Interview with the Vampire. I was so torn between spending a full hour, like, talking about Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt's big gay love affair, and a full hour talking about various vampire mythology from across the world. Uh, In the end, you get neither. But I do highly recommend going and checking out some vampire mythology from outside of Western Christian tradition, which is what we mostly covered in this podcast. Uh, My favourites are the – I'm going 100% butcher this pronunciation – My favorites are the Penangol, which are Malaysian vampires who appear as a disembodied head with their organs trailing behind, or Jiangxi, which are Chinese vampires who hop from place to place. Those guys have a whole genre of cinema that's dedicated to them, and that's definitely worth a look. Uh, And once you have, come chat to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace.